Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table from me is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Say hello, Matthew. Cheerio. Cheerio and all those other good things. Welcome back. Did you get up to anything fun while I was gone? Mm, No. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Well, that's good. Some beach time. Beach time? Yeah. Beach time with the doggo and uh, stuff like that. It was hot here. Super hot. I was melting. Yeah. Two air conditioners going, but just... Wouldn't pump enough cold air. How does Steve deal with the heat? Full spatchcock on the floor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, poor guy. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to Dark Poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Gerald Vincent Bull was a smart cookie. He graduated from the University of Toronto at 20, got a master's degree at 21, and at 22 earned a PhD in aeronautical engineering from the University of Toronto's newly created Institute of Aerodynamics. Magazines touted him as the boy rocket scientist. Nations sought him for his innovative ideas regarding long-range artillery, ballistics, and other military-related endeavors. He was charged several times with breaching arms embargoes, even spending time in prison, a sore spot for the proud scientist. Eventually, he became involved in Iraq's Project Babylon, in which he was asked personally by Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein to build a supergun which would launch weapons into space, giving Hussein the capability of bombing targets thousands of kilometers away. This obviously worried Iraq's neighbors in the Middle East. Before the project was completed, Gerald Bull was assassinated, shot five times outside his apartment in his building in Brussels, Belgium. A lot of nations hated Gerald Bull, and some no doubt wanted him dead, but it remains a mystery as to who was behind his killing. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 231, Die by the Sword, 
The Murder of Gerald Bull. Sounds interesting so far. Sure does. Yeah, we don't usually have political intrigue on the show. No, this is uh, this bit of a whodunit. Yeah. The path that led Gerald Bull, a boy from North Bay, Ontario, to becoming a ballistic engineer working for Iraq and later to his own assassination in Brussels is a long and winding one. North Bay, a city of just over 50,000, lies in the Nipissing district of the province of Ontario, around 350 kilometers north of Toronto. The city lies along a canoe route taken by the famous 16th century French explorer Samuel de Champlain when he went up the Ottawa River through present-day Mattawa onto Trout Lake and via the Lavaz Creek to Lake Nipissing. Have you ever been up in that area? That's um, essentially in Algonquin Provincial Park. Okay. Yeah, so it's beautiful up there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my trips when we were young, uh, you know, we didn't fly to Disneyland and stuff like that. It was load up the back of the station wagon and drive north. And it was often through places like, like Huntsville, I think, and mm-hmm. Nipissing, North Bay. Yeah, it's beautiful. Cool. Yep. According to North Bay's Wikipedia entry, quote, apart from indigenous people, voyagers and surveyors, there was little activity in the Lake Nipissing area until the arrival of the Canadian Pacific Railway, the CPR, in 1882. And that seems to be the case a lot in Canada. It was things like putting through highways and and railroads, which is what made towns and places pop up. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the same as everywhere. Remember a few episodes ago? Mm -hmm. the neighborhoods, uh, you know, surrounding London, uh, you mm-hmm. know, grew when, once the train lines were there. Makes sense, you know, instead of trudging through a forest. Exactly. George L. Toussaint Bull, Gerald's father, was a criminal defense lawyer in North Bay, Ontario, who had graduated from Toronto's Osgood Hall Law School in 1898. Gerald's mother, Gertrude, born Labrosse, was a busy homemaker. George was 35 and Gertrude was only 16 when they married in 1909. And exactly nine months later came their first child, Bernice. The family was devoutly Catholic and grew quickly. Over the next 18 years, there would be eight more siblings. In order, they were Henry, Esmond, Audrey, Clyde, Vivian, Ron, Frank, and Gerald Vincent, who was born on March 9, 1928. That's a lot of kids. It is, and it's it's kind of a thing that Catholic families were doing at the time. I think a lot of families had, on average, more, mm-hmm. and that Catholic families were doubling, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Just a year after Gerald's birth came the stock market crash of 1929. Even before that, the Bull family was already struggling to make ends meet. George's clients, many who were loggers and trappers, often defaulted on their lawyer's fees, even though George had worked diligently to represent them for everything from petty theft to murder. But George's bad investments, having taken out loans for stocks that failed, was what ultimately led to the family's poverty. Seeing the large family might starve in North Bay, they pulled up stakes and moved south to Toronto, where George found a more stable position at a friend's law firm. Gertrude became pregnant again and gave birth to her tenth child, Gordon, on February 27, 1931. Gertrude died a month later after developing an infection. Little Gerald was only three years old at the time. That's really young to be losing a parent. And I mean, people did die in childbirth at that time or as a result of complications of childbirth. 
uh, more often. But I guess it's like it was a numbers game at that point. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder what that would do to a three-year-old, like if mm-hmm. if it would have an effect or if it, the the mom would be more forgotten. You know, I don't really write about it very much, but what I read was that Gerald remembered his mom more than his dad. We'll see later on why that was, but yeah. um, he he did remember his mom, and okay. he was it did have a big effect on him. Because I don't think I can remember. I can't remember until I was about 25. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> but there, then, there then are again, other reasons for maybe that. Maybe that's age. Or, and other Partying. things. Yeah, exactly. George's sister, Laura, took the family into her home in Trenton to take care of despondent George and his gaggle of children. George quit his job to spend most of his days drinking away the misery of his wife's death, essentially becoming the 11th child in the family. That's such a shame. Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity there, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, sorrow and grief. Right. But, God, dude, you have all these children and... It becomes self-pity. I yeah. mean, there were only six left at home at that point, but still only, only right? six. <laughs> Poor guy, though. I mean, yeah. Sadly, only a year after taking in George and the kids, Laura, too, became ill with cancer, and she died on Christmas of 1932. All six bull children who were left at home were then distributed among relatives across Canada, as George was unable to care for them himself. Gerald, or Jerry, ended up in Charbot, Ontario, with his sister Bernice, now married with two small children of her own. Two years later, George was remarried, but none of his brood of ten were invited to the wedding, and Gerald's relationship with his father was negligible for the remainder of George's life. Interesting. Yeah, it's like, okay. I'm moving on. I'm moving on, and I'm not taking all ten of you with me. Nah, crazy. It is crazy. When George was seven, he spent the summer at a 68-acre farm near Kingston with his maternal uncle Philip Labrosse and Philip's wife Edith. Jerry loved it there so much he didn't want to go back to Bernice's, but was too shy to say so. Gerald deliberately left his clothes behind at Philip's home, carrying empty suitcases back to Charbot Lake. <laughs> when this was discovered, it was then that Gerald admitted he wanted to live with his aunt and uncle. What a weird way to do that. That's a very strange way of doing it. How, how old was he at this He was point? seven. Yeah, I mean, this is the way kids' heads work, though, right? Yeah, I yeah. guess so. Maybe if I leave my clothes, I'll have to go back. Yeah, right? have to go back yeah. and, and live with them. <laughs> Edith and Philip drove Gerald toward academic pursuits, and the youngster took to school like a duck to water, excelling at every subject, especially the sciences. He also developed a love of building and flying model airplanes. The more complex, the better. This is also around the time that Gerald developed an interest in long-range artillery also known as superguns, from the article Who Killed Gerald Bull, quote, According to people who knew Bull well, his passion for designing superguns began as a young boy when he became enthralled with the mammoth cannon the Germans used during World War I to bombard Paris. Variously called the Paris gun and Long Max, the weapon was employed for, quote, strategic as opposed to tactical purposes, in that it was meant to strike terror into the hearts and minds of the French citizens. The Paris gun would fire a shell nearly 70 miles in 170 seconds, reaching an altitude of over 20 miles. The French first became aware of the German supergun early on in the morning of March 23, 1918, when, over a period of 24 hours, 
Two dozen huge shells were fired into Paris, killing 15 people and wounding 40 others. End that, quote. That's the way to find out. Stuff starts falling from the sky. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, uh, I used to read a lot of war comic books like Sergeant Rock and Unknown Soldier and all that kind of stuff. And, and I remember in one of those books was a, a gun that was on a rail car. And this might have been, might be the one that they were referring to. But it would fire a projectile that was like the size of a Volkswagen, <laughs> essentially that far. Wow. You know? But now when I'm reading that, I, I was fascinated with it when I read it when I was a kid. But now reading that, I was, I'm thinking how expensive it would be to fire just one shell. You know, like all the material that you would have to gather and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really kind of crazy. Yeah, but I'm I'm trying to think of think of drones and how much they cost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, all right. war machines are hugely expensive. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are. From the book Bullseye: The Assassination and Life of Supergun Inventor Gerald Bull by James Adams. Quote: In the summer of 1944, at the age of 16, Jerry told his aunt and uncle that he wanted to become a doctor. This was a curious choice because he hated the sight of blood and routinely fainted during injections. So you're afraid of needles? I have been. Okay. Yeah, I'm not so much anymore. Okay. And it's because I've exposed myself to it. Like, I'll just do it when I need to get it done. Before, I would avoid it at all costs. Really? Yeah. It's one of the things that never in my life, I always found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I knew there would be like a little bit of a sting. Yeah. But like, I think I had a few times when I was a kid and then once I was like, okay, it never really hurts. Yeah. I'm like, it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not scared okay, of them anymore. Not. Some people, some people take it all the way through adult life. But uh, also blood, the sight of blood. I've seen a lot of it. I worked, helped my dad a lot in the veterinary hospital and sometimes it wouldn't bother me, but then other times it really would. Interesting. One time a horse came in, in uh, a horse wagon, like a trailer. And, um, it had cut its leg on a fence and when the, the owner of the horse took the bandage off, the horse's arterial spray shot across the parking lot. Wow. And that's how strong it was, you know, just to show dad, (laughs) like how bad it was. And, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, whoa, that's pretty crazy. And then later on, thinking about it, I fainted and fell off my bicycle. Really? <laughs> yes, I did. So important question, was the horse okay? The horse was okay. okay. Yeah, dad fixed it up. Good. Yeah. Oh, Ted, he was a good pet. The quote from Bullseye continues, Gerald's designs on going to medical school were soon thwarted, quote, because he couldn't find a medical school that would accept him at his age. The only faculty that would agree to teach him was in the Department of Aeronautical Engineering at the University of Toronto. Tommy Loudon, one of the faculty members, saw Jerry's promise immediately and even detected a nascent talent for design. Jerry was the youngest student in the new department. Once again, his enthusiasm and intelligence carried him past the, pre- the prejudices of the authorities Carried him past the prejudices, carried him past the prejudices of the authorities who had been reluctant to admit him. End quote. 16 years old. That's pretty young to be going to university. Yeah. Four years later, he graduated with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Aeronautical Engineering, and it was at that time that Gerald's father died. Gerald's relationship with George, his alcoholic father, had been strained since George had essentially abandoned Jerry and his siblings. Jerry was determined not to be like his dad and had an aversion to booze early on. However, 
Later in life, he began to drink too. After his first stint in university, Jerry worked as a draftsman at A.V. Rowe Aircraft, better known as Avro, in Toronto. And it was there that he developed the obsession with supersonic flight. After hearing the news of the successful supersonic flight of the X-1 research rocket plane piloted by Charles Chuck Yeager on October 14, 1947, Bull wanted to become more involved in the aeronautic industry. Mm. Yeah, I think there's something about um, he's smart, mm-hmm. but he's also young and that like almost, and curious, almost yeah. childhood fascination with airplanes. So, yeah. but, but he's smart enough to also know how to start designing them. Yeah, to it's do something quite about fascinating. it. Yeah. yeah. The fates aligned for Gerald, and he was able to do just that when, according to James Adams in Bullseye, quote, in 1948, Dr. Gordon N. Patterson had established the Institute of Aerophysics for the research and teaching of supersonic dynamics at the University of Toronto. The institute was funded largely by Canada's Defense Research Board, DRB. Because the science of supersonics was so poorly understood, Little teaching could be accomplished. However, instead, the DRB offered grants of $2,000 on average, which allowed students to conduct their own research in a university setting as part of their graduate work toward an MA or PhD degree. So it it was like a science that was in its infancy. And uh, this is when Gerald got involved. So it's kind of a good, you know, you're getting involved in something like this that is moving the world forward. Mm. Early on in life, early on in your career, I can't think of being placed better. No. Gerald Bull was one of the first 12 students accepted into the program at 20 years old. He was the youngest, he was the youngest of the bunch by a long way. He went to work on his first big project with a fellow student building a supersonic wind tunnel, and there weren't many of those at the time. Gerald completed his master's thesis in 1949, and a year after that, at only 22, had earned his PhD. PhD at 22. What a dum-dum. Wow. (laughs) Right? According to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, Bull's experience in designing the wind tunnel brought him to the attention of the Defense Research Board, which was working on a sophisticated missile system codenamed Velvet Glove. Oh, that's a good name. Velvet Glove. He began working for the Canadian Armament and Research Development Establishment, CARD, a secretive weapons development lab at the military base in Valcartier, Quebec. So an iron fist and a velvet glove, that's a saying, right? Yes, yeah. So I'm wondering, because it's wind tunnel and stuff, maybe they thought that's like the soft part of it or something. I guess, I don't know. I was sitting here trying to figure out, you know, where where the codename came from. I'm like, iron fist, velvet glove. Hmm. The Velvet Glove missile project required evaluating the aerodynamic characteristics of in-flight missiles. Okay, so it's it's evaluating the characteristics. It's not building the missile itself. So I guess that's the Velvet Glove part of it. Okay. Usually, models were tested in a supersonic wind tunnel, but Valcartier didn't have one. What Valcartier did have was an abundance of old artillery pieces and an artillery range designed to study projectiles in flight. Gerald Bull, calling on his childhood supergun obsession, had the idea of shooting missiles from these artillery pieces. The experience proved that firing missile models out of the cannons was basically as effective as using wind tunnels and studying aerodynamic forces. It was also far less expensive than building a new wind tunnel. The idea wasn't just applicable to missiles either. It could be applied to aircraft models. 
models of the Avro Arrow were fired over Lake Ontario for aerodynamic evaluation. These experiments on the Arrow models led to modifications that then allowed the Arrow to sustain supersonic flight. And just an aside, I plan to dedicate an entire episode to the ill-fated Avro Arrow aircraft at some point. Because you're a big grown-up boy. Um, yeah, I'm a big nerd. Airplane. Airplane. <laughs> After Velvet Glove, frustrated with the politics and red tape at Card, Gerald Bull joined McGill University as a professor. There, he became involved in Project HARP, a.k.a. High Altitude Research Project. HARP was a joint venture of the United States Department of Defense and Canada's Department of National Defense, created with the goal of studying ballistics of re-entry vehicles and collecting upper atmosphere data for research. Unlike conventional space launching methods that rely on rockets, HARP instead used very large guns to fire projectiles into the atmosphere at extremely high speeds. So his little obsession that he had with that German supergun mm. years and years ago kind of took him, you know, formed his career. Into the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, Several HARP guns were constructed, one of which was created by welding two old battleship guns together. This produced guns that were over 30 meters long and weighed over 181 tons. <laughs> it's like, it, what's funny though is like way back then, mm -hmm. like, you know, he was smart and they developed yep. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if you think of how things are made now, back then it's like, fuck it, let's just, let's just weld these two old, old ones together. Yeah. <laughs> just laughing, going, kind of going, you know, this is the height of technology and they're just like, just sticking two together and yeah. welding them. It's like kludging it all together. <laughs> Bull also developed specially designed projectiles called martlets, which were equipped with sensors designed to study the upper atmosphere. In 1966, a martlet launched from the harp gun reached a record for an artillery projectile of 180 kilometers into the atmosphere. That's crazy. That's pretty high. That is very high. I was, I, was, I was trying to figure out where 180 kilometers is from here, and then I was in my head going, now go up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you fly at 30,000 feet. So it's like from here to past hope. Right. And then, but straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Public sentiments toward military affairs became increasingly negative as the unpopular war in Vietnam raged. A change of government and some negative press led Canada to cut their funding to Bull's projects, frustrating him. He was still Canadian at heart and had been working toward launching a Canadian flag into orbit in time for the Canadian centennial. Okay. But it didn't happen after the budget cuts. Well, I guess it's kind of not important to be, <laughs> you know, let's use all this money to launch a Canadian flag into orbit. When Canadian funding was not renewed in 1967, Bull decided to move south, becoming an American citizen. Gerald Bull was allowed to keep the high-water Quebec testing range and all its equipment. In the late 1960s, he founded the Space Research Corporation. He put his expertise in ballistics to use, developing new artillery systems and peddling his ballistics expertise to any nation who wanted to hire him. You know, that story, that's interesting. So they cut funding in 1967, mm -hmm. right? It'd be interesting to see where Canada would be technologically yeah. if they kept funding stuff back then. Well, yeah, exactly. Right? Where would we be if, if we still had an aeronautics 
uh, industry like yeah, Avro. We'd, we'd have more than the Canada arm. Right. Right. Well, that's something to be proud of. It's it not, is, but it's just the arm. Like, yeah. It would have been interesting to we see. We would then probably have the Canada leg as well. <laughs> Canada torso. <laughs> Can't, oh, I, I don't want to go any further. I'm thinking now. Perfect. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, In the mid-1970s, apartheid South Africa was engaged in a war with Angola. Angolan revolutionaries, with the support of the Cuban military, were seeking to halt South Africa's military intervention in Angola. The United States had made it illegal to export weapons to South Africa. Canada and the United States were signatories to the arms embargo, end quote. So here we go. This is where he gets in trouble for the first time. Yeah. An investigation by the CBC in 1978 revealed that shell casings manufactured at the high-water plant, Bull's plant, Mm -hmm. were in fact being transported to South Africa. Criminal and civil charges were filed against Bull. It is strongly suspected, though not conclusively proven, that Gerald Bull was fulfilling contracts for the American Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. The CIA had an important role in keeping South Africa well-armed despite the embargo. Bull was found guilty. His company was ordered to pay a $55,000 fine in Canada, while Bull was sentenced to six months in a minimum security prison in America. After his conviction, Gerald Bull became resentful. From an article by William Lothar in The Ottawa Citizen, quote, For years afterward, Bull muttered darkly about how he had been made the fall guy for the CIA. Mm. He insisted to anyone who would listen that he had been forced to go to jail briefly as the plea bargain price of staying silent for what he knew about the U.S. government's defiance of its own laws. Um, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it just brings to mind Iran-Contra and other things like that. And literally everything ever. (laughs) Yeah. Bull was the man who knew too much, but couldn't say anything. His failure to comply would have meant he would never be in business as a defense consultant again anywhere in the world, or so he said he was warned. Over time, instead of being quenched by the years, Bull's burning anger over what had happened to him raged into a consuming passion. In the last months of his life, it boiled over. End quote. Okay. It was most likely this resentment that led Gerald Bull to accepting Saddam Hussein's invitation to build a supergun for him that would be capable of bombing any nation in the Middle East. Now we have to remember, right? Mm-hmm. Hussein was Hussein and he was always a bad guy. Right. But back then... He was aligned with different countries he was at aligned, different times. He was, he was a useful bad guy for a lot of the countries. That's right. A lot of the countries that we are close to and affiliated to. Yes. Right? The West. The West. I'll say the West. Yeah. In early 1988, Gerald Bull was flown to Baghdad where Saddam hosted him in his presidential palace. Saddam had been impressed by Bull's work and well acquainted with his earlier efforts. Saddam had employed the Canadian Engineers Artillery Technology long-range 155mm cannons to devastating effect during the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. At their meeting, Bull told Hussein that he could provide tech that would fast-track the dictator's weapons programs into the space age with his superguns. Saddam loved what he heard and hired Bull on the spot. They agreed to call the operation Project Babylon, and by April of that year, Bull had delivered to Hussein plans for a prototype supergun. 
In August of 1988, the Iraqis approved two gun contracts. The steel piping for the 350mm Baby Babylon was to be built by England's Walter Summers Limited. Sheffield Forge Masters, a British Midlands foundry, was to provide piping for the massive 1,000mm Big Babylon. Bull received $25 million U.S. as a down payment. The smaller 45-meter, 350-millimeter caliber gun known as Baby Babylon would be completed for testing purposes, and then Bull was to start work on the real PC-2 machine, a gun that was 150 meters long, weighed 1,510 tons, and a bore of 1 meter, 39 inches, that would allow the firing of multi-state rocket-assisted shells with a range of over 5,000 miles or 8,000 kilometers, or to launch a 1,200-pound, 540-kilogram satellites into orbit. So Saddam didn't need rockets to get to space. He would just use this supergun. The, Matthew's making a face. <laughs> the project objective was to eventually provide Iraq with three 350mm Baby Babylon guns and two 1,000mm PC-2 Big Babylon guns. I'm just thinking, right, this is sort of, if you wanted to take them out, right? Mm -hmm. You have nukes. Yeah. Right? And technology. But if you wanted to stick a nuke in it as well, right? you could just, okay, well, see, let, let's figure out if that will work now, right? Hussein's egoistic dreams of Middle East domination and the eventual destruction of Israel seemed to be taking shape. In March of 1989, propellant for the now-ready and on-schedule Baby Babylon was delivered to Iraq from a Belgian munitions company called PRB. In April, the smaller gun was tested successfully. With that complete, work began in earnest on Big Babylon. Things began to unravel in September of 1989 when PRB, the Belgian munitions manufacturer, was purchased by a British-owned defense company called Astra Holdings. Within days of the purchase, Astra discovered the deal with the Iraqi government for the propellant. In November of that year, when plans for Baby and Big Babylon arrived at PRB from Bull's company, the red flags went up. Saddam was up to something that would have terrible consequences if it were completed. The executives at Astra informed British intelligence about what was in the works. Mm. And here we go. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. And he wanted to wipe out Israel. Mm -hmm. And he was working on that weapon of mass destruction that they were unable to find. When... Later on, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? And Israel is, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, needs to be protected from that stuff. <laughs> sure. Every country does. Yeah. Bull was now living in a one-bedroom apartment in Brussels to oversee the project's operations. Bull's apartment was on the sixth floor of the apartment building, and his suite overlooked a park. Gerald had told his family that in the months of late 1989 and early 1990, he had begun to notice strange things in the apartment. His personal effects had been moved or otherwise tampered with when he wasn't at home. His cleaning lady told him she hadn't touched the items that Gerald was referring to. Bull became concerned that something was very wrong and began to fear for his life. From William Lowther in the Ottawa Citizen, quote, It had been little things at first. Interrupted by a phone call one night, he had switched off his VCR halfway through a rented film. The call was a request to speed up work on a problem the Chinese army was having with a new artillery system. And Bull had decided to spend the rest of the night doing the much-needed calculations. When he returned from the office the next evening, 
He had found the film out of the VCR, rewound and placed neatly in its box on the side table. Be kind, rewind. Well, someone had done that. <laughs> do you remember Serial Mom? I do. When the woman doesn't rewind, so Serial Mom beats her death to death with a leg of lamb. I don't remember. And then she goes, rewind! <laughs> oh, dear. Classic. So, anyway, that was odd. It is. Yeah. Can you imagine, Mike, you coming home and, like, just little shit being, like, nothing dramatic? Just moved. Just weird stuff being moved. Someone letting you know that they were there. Yeah. Bull went back over the exact sequence of events, and he had been enjoying the film. The phone rang, he put the VCR on pause, and he answered. The conversation had been long and detailed. After it, he'd turned off the VCR, deliberately leaving the movie in the machine so he could later pick up where he'd left off. But now, with the film rewound and in its box, he experienced a quiver of apprehension. It was such a little thing, so innocuous, but some deep instinct would not let Bull dismiss it. End quote. Wow. Yeah, like, nobody else is supposed to be in your apartment. That would freak me out. It would really freak me out. I'm going to start... Sneaking in here in the middle of the night and moving your furniture so when you wake up, it's... But yeah. now that I've told you, that won't do yep. anything. Yeah, it won't do anything. Okay. On the evening of March 22nd, 1990, Gerald Bull was driven home by a colleague at around 6.30 p.m. He seemed in good spirits when he got out of the car, briefcase in hand, and made his way into his building. He went to his floor in the elevator, and as he was putting the key into his door of his place, someone snuck up behind Gerald and executed him. Bull was found by a friend face down in the hallway ten minutes after the shooting. Blood and bone fragments were splattered all over the walls, carpet, and yellow door of his apartment. He'd been shot three times in the back with a silenced 7.65mm automatic pistol. To make sure of his death, while Gerald lay on the floor, the assassin had walked up and shot him twice point-blank in the back of the head. Overkill. He'd been dead before he'd hit the floor. Police investigators discovered that Gerald had more than $20,000 in cash in his unlocked briefcase that was found beside him. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive. Twenty grand, yeah, this guy's doing deals. Mm-hmm, for sure. You're getting $25 million advances. You're dealing with... Right, and you're walking around with suitcases full of cash. Yeah, and also, we just sort of, in passing, mentioned that he was doing stuff for the Chinese military as <laughs> yeah, well. I noticed that. We were like, you know, like, it was just like in there. It's like, oh, yeah, so China as well, right? He's, sounds like he was dealing with everybody. That's the thing. Right. On April 2nd, Saddam, livid at Bull's death, threatened to destroy Israel with a chemical attack. Thankfully, it never came. Three days later, Bull's family announced that Gerald's company was ceasing operations. That same month, parts for Bull's supergun were seized in the UK, Greece, West Germany, and Italy. Mm. So it sounds like everything was just kind of planned to occur afterwards. It's like, okay, we kill this guy and then we'll seize everything so it kill doesn't get... Kill this guy, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. Give Saddam some money to calm him down. Who knows? Gerald's body was taken home. His packed funeral was held at the Church of St. Bruno outside of Montreal. Apart from his family, more than 600 people attended. Many were business associates. According to James Adams in his book Bullseye, quote, The family's glowing tribute described a paragon, a perfect father, a Samaritan, a gentleman in the true sense of the word, 
But to others, he was a convicted criminal, a sanctions buster who smuggled arms illegally to South Africa, and possibly a rogue agent for the CIA, end quote. Although there were leads, including shadowy men renting an apartment close to Bulls, who then disappeared the day of his slaying, none of those leads panned out. The murder of Gerald Vincent Bull remains a mystery to this day. And more after this quick break. But first, here's a promo from our friend Cambo at True Crime Island, a podcast we think you might like. He's from Down Under. you get mad when listening to true crime well so do i if you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair this is cambo from true crime island another true crime podcast and maintain the rage with me visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode plus there's links to itunes and social media and as i always say Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. Matthew, thoughts so far? Why do I find sort of spy international arms stories so bloody intriguing i don't know i do too like books um john le carré i think his name books movies i love i don't know why but these stories absolutely fascinate me Mm -hmm. i don't know i have but i don't i can't pinpoint why well it's probably a world we're not really familiar with right and the secrecy of it is is sort of intriguing yeah yeah because you know this is fascinating and i find him a really interesting guy but he wasn't doing good things no, right? and we'll, we'll get into that. Right, but he was, he, but he was smart. So I kind of like it's one of these things where I, I give him that, right? I give him that he's smart and is, he's very interesting. But it's like, ooh, no, you're dealing with some baddies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're creating technology that kills. Yep. There are four typical motives for murder, according to Doctor Peter Morrell, head of the Mental Health, Learning Disabilities, and Behavioral Sciences at uh, University of Leeds. Those motives are lust, love, loathing, and uh, loot. I love that he made them all sort of with the same first letter. Alliteration, yeah. (laughs) A killing motivated by lust, Dr. Morale says, is uh, when a lover kills a rival for his or her object of desire, or the thrill killer who murders because he gains a sexual payoff. A murder motivated by love is the mercy killing of a baby with a major deformity or a partner with incurable cancer. Uh, I was going to ask, I was going to ask, how do they define love, love or lust? Yeah, right. right. Okay, get it. I get it. Yeah. Murder motivated by loathing is lethal hate directed toward one person. For example, an abusive parent or a group, such as homosexuals or prostitutes. Sorry, Matthew. Homosexual. Culture or nation, for example, Palestinians toward Israelis and vice versa. And a loot-motivated killing 
is done for financial gain through inheritance or insurance payouts, a murder occurring during a robbery or gang warfare over the control of drug markets, employment as a contract killer or mercenary. So I would think that this would fall into the loot category, like maybe somebody was getting some loot for killing him. Yes. These contract killers, or it could have been just simply this, that the story of the murder of Gerald Bull falls into yet another category. And that's what American political scientist Rudolf Rummel has called democide. In a 1996 paper called Death by Government, R.J. Rummel, in the Journal of Interdisciplinary History, defined democide as, quote, the intentional killing of an unarmed or disarmed person by government agents acting in their authoritative capacity and pursuant to government policy or high command, end quote. That is such a good term, democide. Democide, yeah. Wow. Just days ago, we saw an example of that. Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in a targeted Hellfire missile strike from a drone as he stood on the balcony of his safe house in Kabul, Afghanistan. Al-Zawahiri was a man who had been credited as being one of the masterminds between the 2001 9-11 attacks in the United States, as well as other attacks against Americans prior to that. It had taken almost 21 years, but the United States finally made good on their promise to serve justice on those responsible for what happened all those years ago. And he totally deserved it. Well, President Joe Biden summed up the operation in a speech given on August 1st, 2022. Quote, From hiding, he coordinated al-Qaeda's branches all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance that called for and inspired attacks against U.S. targets. He made videos, including in recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. You know, we make it clear, again tonight, no matter how long it takes, no matter where you hide... If you are a threat to our people, the United States will find you and take you out. So I'm no, by no means I'm comparing Gerald Bull to Ayman al-Zawahiri. I don't think Bull was a terrorist. He was lacking maybe the ideal of terrorism. I, I think he was an, a technology uh, enabler. Yeah. Right. His murder and the assassination of al-Zawahiri seemed to be motivated by similar ideas, though. Mm -hmm. Yes. So both were perceived as threats, arguably rightfully so, to one or more nations, and both men died for those activities. Yes. In the case of Ayman Zawahiri, the United States has been forthright in taking responsibility for the strike that killed the terrorist. Bull's killing seems to be another matter entirely. No one has ever come forward to claim that they were behind the Canadian engineer's killing. The most simplified speculations I could find on who might have killed Gerald Bull come from the compendium, Strange Crime, from the editors of Portable Press. Theory 1. The British MI6 did it. A week after Bull's murder, British journalist Jonathan Moyle was found dead in Santiago, Chile, with a pillowcase over his head. He'd been researching a story on British ties to Iraqi weapons buyers. Mm. Theory 2. The Iraqis did it. 
A week before Bull was killed in Brussels, the Iraqis executed an Iranian-born British journalist named Farzad Bazoft, who was asking questions about Bull and Adams. Theory 3. The CIA did it. The United States was no friend to Saddam Hussein and no friend to weapons consultants who helped him. And Theory 4. The Israelis did it. And he's not the only one. Two years after Bull's murder, a British engineer named Christopher Crowley testified before the House of Commons that he and Bull regularly supplied Western intelligence agents with information about the supergun. In the 1980s, Israel was quick to respond to any threats from Iraq, so Crowley believes Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, had the guns inventor eliminated, end quote. And there were other nation states that were also suspects, Chile, Syria, and South Africa. So a lot of people seem to have a motive to kill Gerald Bull. You know what I think happened? What? I think that MI6, mm-hmm. the CIA, yeah. and, and Mossad were all involved. Got together. Yeah. And went, okay, you get this journalist, I get this one, but da 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 da. Then we're going to sweep up, then we're going to get the parts. I bet you it was a coordinated effort. Probably. Many believe of any of the most likely theories, it was the Israeli Mossad who were directly responsible for Bull's murder. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Mossad in full, Mossad Merkazi Lemodin Ule Tafkadim Mehuadim, which is Hebrew for Central Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations, is one of three major intelligence organizations of Israel, along with Amman, the military intelligence, and Shin Bet, internal security. The Mossad is concerned with foreign intelligence gathering, intelligence analysis, and covert operations. From the Mossad's own website, quote, The Mossad have been involved in special operations and activity in the service of the State of Israel, such as the pursuit of Nazi criminals, the pinnacle of which was the capture of Nazi criminal Adolf Eichmann in 1960 and his trial in Israel. Another example was finding and returning the child Yosele Schumacher to Israel in 1962 after he was abducted from his parents and smuggled out of Israel by his grandfather. This affair caused a great public uproar at the time, and due to the fear of a civil war breaking out between religious and secular people, David Ben-Gurion instructed the Mossad to locate and retrieve the child, and so it did. The Mossad worked to rescue Jews from troubled countries and bring them to Israel, the most prominent of those was Mitzvah Moshe, Operation Moses, for bringing the Jews of Ethiopia to Israel. By nature, the Mossad was and is a key factor in the war against terror directed at Jewish and Israeli targets abroad. Over the years, the Mossad has assumed a key role in preventing countries that pose a threat to Israel from obtaining non-conventional weapons. Hmm. End quote. Yeah. They are essentially admitting that maybe we're involved in this and sort of, a, it, it's their mandate. Yeah, it's it, absolutely their mandate. It it's very much suits their mandate. I tell you though, Mike, you want the Mossad on your side. Oh, I These definitely These guys do. are good. Well, I'm a, I'm a quarter Jewish. So. I know. And I was thinking about while you were trying to pronounce the, the long version of, of, of the Mossad. I was, I was thinking, I'm going to save up money and send Mike to Hebrew school. No, I don't want to go. Hebrew yes! school? Nah. <laughs> yes. Embrace it, your culture, Mike. Yeah. It does not seem like much of a stretch to come to the conclusion that they, the Mossad, are responsible for Gerald Bull's assassination, especially as he was working with Iraq in the development of Project Babylon, 
that would have given Saddam Hussein, a vocal adversary of the nation of Israel, the ability to rain down destruction from the heavens upon that country. All of this does beg the question, is state-sponsored homicide ever the moral solution? Are there other less lethal options that should have been considered? If they were, why was lethality seen as the only logical choice? This is interesting, because mm-hmm. right? you know I am against the death penalty. Yes. But, but when there's a terrorist in a safe house in the Middle East mm-hmm. that you can't get to. Yeah. And I have to be careful, right? Because I I don't want... It's a slippery slope. You do not want governments willy-nilly killing whoever they think. No. But, you know, I'm kind of like... I have so many friends in Israel, right? And I have for a long time. And I'm like, this guy was getting close to finish a gun gun for Saddam Hussein to bomb Israel. Yeah. Take him out. Yeah. Right? If If you need to. Because they probably didn't have... The problem is you have all the secret intelligence. And if you try to go to court, then all the stuff comes out and they start figuring out where the moles are and everything. But right? why Why kill the guy? Like, essentially, the cat's already out of the bag. Just, yeah. Just stop the whole the whole project. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just, yeah. That's true as well, actually. Like, mm-hmm. literally just completely arrest him again. Yeah. And say, you're dealing again. Yeah. And then go to Italy and Yeah, all Greece the places and, where they and, where yeah. they knew everything was. Yeah, just, you're right. I wonder why. Yeah. So I get caught up in this story and I forget that it's real. Right. Right, because I've seen so many spy movies, mm-hmm. I forget that this is real. Right? Yeah. So when researching this case, an adage came to mind that was expressed eloquently by Mr. Spock in his emotional death scene in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I am such a nerd. Spock said... Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, to which Captain Kirk answers, or the one. And that's a slippery slope, I think. It's a very slippery slope. From the site of the objectivist standard. Okay. Do do you read this? I know it. Okay. They say, what of Spock's claim? Logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Logic requires that some evidence be offered in support of such a claim, but Spock offers no evidence in support of this. He just asserts it. Which many? Which few? Outweigh on whose scale? For what purpose? To what benefit? Why is his or their benefit the proper benefit? Spock does not address such questions. He simply asserts that logic clearly dictates his conclusion, but it doesn't. Far from being an expression of logic, Spock's claim that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few is an arbitrary assertion and a restatement of the baseless moral theory known as utilitarianism, Mm -hmm. which asserts that each individual should act to serve the greatest good for the greatest number. So who gets to make these decisions, Matthew? Which many gets to choose life or death for the few or the one? That's totally objectivist epistemology. So the objective standard, I think, was started by Ayn Ayn Rand. Yes, it was. And and this is libertarian. And that's exactly the issue. You know, when you say things like that, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, where do you go? Yeah. And that's why I'm like, okay, I got got excited about this because it's... uh, It's emotional. It evokes emotion. It it evokes emotion, but... It's a threat. Yeah. It is... uh, Somebody is posing a threat. Yeah. And you think... The threat must be eliminated, but should it? Or is there a different way to eliminate the threat that doesn't involve violence? Yeah. So, right, because this is real. I keep forgetting. Yeah. So shine the light on it. Mm -hmm. Be less secretive. 
Like maybe this is the answer, right? All these secrets, maybe they don't need to really exist. That's be- the thing. Because they're keeping all of your dirty laundry out as well. So so shine the light on it and say under arrest for doing this because we have agreements. Right. Right. So will the killers of Gerald Bull ever own up to it? No. Personally, I don't think Absolutely so. Absolutely not. They haven't so far, uh, more than 32 years later, publicly at least, perhaps somewhere behind closed doors and for national security reasons, the people who really, quote, need to know who done it are well aware. And once again, we, the people, are kept in the dark. As Jack Nicholson's character screamed from the stand in the film, A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. We can, though. It, exactly. We can. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, so there's been fictionalized retellings of this. Uh, there was a movie, a TV movie in 1994 starring Frank Langella, who also was famous for playing Dracula. Uh, he portrayed Gerald Bull in this movie called Doomsday Gun. Uh, was it a bad Canadian film? Or it was probably it? was. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for Dark Poutine episode 231, Die by the Sword, The Murder of Gerald Bull. That was uh, that was fresh. That yeah. was, that was a different approach to the DP. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here is our first voicemail. Let's have a listen. Hey, Mike and Matt. It's Ryan here from Winterpage, Manistoba. Although it is the middle of July today, and we are in the 35 degree heat wave, so last uh, well, perhaps came from my city today, I guess. But I was just listening to the episode on uh, the death of John Belushi, episode 182, 183. I know I'm really far behind. I've been just finishing a master's degree, and um, my time has seemed to just evaporate in front of me. Um, I just wanted to comment on something that I heard Mike say um, about the grass always being greener. Uh, he was talking about um, just always wanting something that you can't have or something that isn't quite there or something that's unavailable. And I had an experience that I just wanted to share briefly. Um, whether or not you play this on the show, is I don't. it doesn't make a difference to me. I just wanted to, to share and comment. Um, feeling particularly inspired today. Not sure why, but um, when I was uh, in my early 20s in 2015, I just finished my uh, first degree, and I thought I had to get out of the city. I thought I had to leave the city and find a professional career in a different country. So I packed up my stuff, and I moved to New Zealand. Um, I was drawn to this life of uh, always being on the road and kind of taking myself or having the wind take me wherever it was going to take me and and, um, having that freedom. And so I packed up and left, and I lived in New Zealand for six months. And in that six months, I think in the first month or so, when I was traveling uh, just out of a van, uh, all I wanted to do was find a current job, find a steady place to live, and 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 just have a stability in my life again. Um, and that idea of the grass always being greener, just when you mentioned it, really reminded me of that experience. And um, people say the grass is always greener on the other side. The, the way I'd shift that a little bit is just to suggest that the grass is always greener where you water it. So um, that kind of allowed me to learn just that lesson of being grateful for where I'm at and, uh, you know, learning to love where I'm at in that sense. So that's all I want to say. Uh, Thanks so much again for the podcast. I love listening to it when I can. 
and uh, hopefully I can actually write an episode for you one of these days. So aside from that, hope you're all well, and go take a shit in your hat. Wow, thank you so much. Um, and, and a bit of wisdom in that voicemail, I would say. This, this is a man who has done a little bit of life life and, yeah. and look inward looking. Yeah. Uh, I think he also learned the, the, a lesson that I learned after always traveling is no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> but also the grass is always, always greenest over the septic tank. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for that. And yeah, by all means, if you want to write an episode, that keeps, keeps me uh, busy to do write my book, actually. So I'm writing <laughs> another book. That's right. And I'm trying to help with more episodes. You are but. trying to help. And I help. And I help. I'm just, uh, you know, other yeah. job. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, so, cur- the curse of the podcaster. Right? <laughs> Here's our next voicemail. Hi, guys. It is Cheryl calling from Central Alberta, Canada. And I wasn't going to call until I got caught up with all of the episodes because I'm late to the party. But I had to call this time just because I just finished the episode about the Niagara Falls people, and I was waiting for you, Mike, to start singing Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls, but you did it, so I was seriously disappointed in you because I was, I thought any minute he's going to say it, any minute he's going to start singing, and you did it. And another one that I really enjoyed was the gentleman who would sneak gold out of the mint through his chocolate starfish. <laughs> I, uh, I very much enjoyed that episode and all the little euphemisms. And you guys make me laugh. You join me on my daily drive all the time. And it keeps me awake because my drive can be very boring in central Alberta without any mountains. So thank you very much, and I will probably call again once I actually get caught up in all the episodes, because I'm kind of jumping around, but I'm slowly getting there. And just to let you know that you should go shit in your hat and have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, so she's <laughs> calling to, to berate me for not saying for not singing, but if you heard me sing... You would probably be grateful I, that I, I don't, didn't I do that. I don't know that song, Chasing Rain. It's TLC. Don't go chasing waterfalls. See, I did sing. I don't song. know. I don't know. I know yeah. Chasing Pavement. No. By what's her name? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Um, I just learned yesterday mm-hmm. through Friends in the Umbriard because I thought I would ask, instead of Googling, right. what Central Alberta actually is. Okay. Yeah, because to me... Like all of Alberta is sort of central, like because it's over in the mountains. <laughs> like to me, it's like wow, it's just all Alberta. And when I first moved here, I had to, I had to, under, I had to learn what the Lower Mainland sure. and everything was. Central Alberta is, I guess, from like the south side of Edmonton to the north side of Calgary. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. is there is there a city called um, Red Deer yes. in between the two? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Red Deer is sort of supposedly like the middle of Central Alberta. I like, I've been driven through there. I've never been to Edmonton, which is interesting. I plan plan to go there soon. I've got the hiccups. But uh, but yeah, uh, Alberta is really, when you're driving, she's right. Like, I remember driving across the prairies and being like, 
there is more and more and more of the same thing over and over and over again is like, it, it's not ugly, but it, it is. It's a beautiful, lot. but it's samey. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. samey. Yeah. Right. And it was like very hard not to fall asleep. So rather than listen to my own voice, I listened to other audio books, but, uh, but yeah, Alberta is a, the, the whole of Canada is like a long ass drive, especially Ontario. You, you feel like that's never going to end. Everyone so, always says that about Ontario. It is long. Have you ever driven from one end of, from Manitoba to the end of Ontario? Well, that's not just Ontario. That's half of Manitoba as well. I didn't say Winnipeg. Oh, from the end, oh, from the end of Manitoba. Yeah. Yeah, because you got to go loop-de-loop around like yeah, some waters and stuff. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's long. Um, Here's one more voicemail. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Matt. Um, <laughs> my name is Sarah. This is off the cuff entirely. My name is Sarah calling from Florida, down here in the States. And I'm uh, just just recently started listening. I shouldn't say recently. I've already binged myself up to uh, episode 181. And it was actually the post-discussion of, um, of this particular episode that prompted me to call and thank you for causing me to make an absolute spectacle of myself in the middle of the Costco because uh, Matthew was regaling with the story of how he had to make an emergency landing in Saskatchewan. And as he was boarding the second plane out of Regina, said, well, here's one more place ending in Gina. I wish to never return. <laughs> and I, I burst into tears and laughter in the middle of the produce section of the Costco. So um, thank you so much for that and for all that you do. I enjoy every episode that I have listened to, uh, all 181 so far, and I know I've got about a year's worth still to catch up on, and I can't wait. So go Take a shit in your hat, gentlemen, and thank you from the bottom of my little Floridian heart. <laughs> Have a wonderful day. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you, Sarah. Gina. So when Mike and I were dri- driving in, in to go to Seattle and c- c- crossing over the border, yes. so the, the border guard, the American border guard, um, asked why we're coming in and Mike explained, oh, we do a, a true crime podcast and we're going to meet, um, have a meetup with listeners. And he asked Mike, uh, why'd you get into that? And I was thinking, he's asking Mike because he wants to know if Mike's done cr- criminal stuff, right? So Mike starts going into um, the potent- the uh, attempted abduct- abduction of him as when he was a child. Yeah. And the border guard's like, okay. And like he listens and he looks at me to like and go like to question and I just go I just go, I'm the comic relief. <laughs> he just like and then he goes then he waves us through. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious. But I'm glad I made you laugh. Yeah. Um and Florida, I wish I was like laying on a beach. Florida. Well hey, Florida is the next crime gone. So Oh yeah, near Orlando. Is that where Disney World is? Or yes, Disneyland? it is. Disney World. Disney World. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Yeah, we should. All right, that's it for voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six. 
or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty, it is time for our Patreon shoutouts and donut money donors. I'm looking forward to this. Let's DMDs. The DMDs. <laughs> it's I am so tired. I am still really, really badly jet lagged from London. I my brain is just not working. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> While we were recording this, because you do edit a bit, I haven't seen you stumble this much before. Yeah, I'm you're, just... You're like, blah, blah, blah. Like, you sort of like, you start going into gibberish. It was yeah, so funny to watch. I am so, so tired. It is, it's better if, uh, yeah, yeah, it is not good. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we do have some new patrons, Matt. <gasps> Our, our new patrons. Patreons, we love you already. So first up we have Karen Pitt. Karen Pitt! And I don't know where Karen, you, Karen. Pitt is from. Karen Pitt is from Copenhagen. Copenhagen, Denmark. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I flew over a, uh, a holding of Denmark in that being Greenland on the way back okay. from London. Yeah. Um, what does she do? What does Karen do there in Denmark. In Copenhagen specifically. Mm -hmm. She runs a Copenhagen cafe. The Copenhagen cafe. Are there yeah. any specialties there? It's called the Copacabana. Oh, fudge. Um, her specialty mm -hmm. is iced coffee in general. Well, how I actually you... just said Copenhagen because I've decided I want to name places that I've not been before, but I really want to go in hopes that somebody actually is from there, and then we can become friends and I can go visit them. We have listeners in Denmark. I've never been to Copenhagen. I want to go. Like, do you know how long I lived in Europe and I've never been to Copenhagen? It's it's my it's my own private shame. Mm. Yeah. Next up, we have Miranda. Just We're like Miranda. Cher or Madonna, we have Miranda. Miranda. And I don't know where Miranda lives either. You don't know where Miranda lives? Mm-mm. Are you sure? Does Miranda live on the veranda? <laughs> don't be horrible. I'm, I'm wondering if this is my friend. My my friend Mur actually goes by codename of Miranda sometimes. No, it's not. Okay. She's from Vladivostok, which I would like to go to Vladivostok. after the Russian stuff. Yeah, let's, yeah stop yeah. that, Russia. That's not nice. You guys are not doing nice things. Yeah, and she's a translator. Oh, nice. Yeah, Chinese, English, and Russian translator. Wow, that's yep. that's some heavy lang languaging. Yep. <laughs> Next, we have Carla Folstad, and Carla is from Regina, Saskatchewan. <laughs> China! It's another Gina place that you don't want to visit. You know... <laughs> I didn't want to go to <clears throat> I didn't want to go back to Regina not because of the people mm -hmm. but because of the horrible airport experience when ah. we had to do emergency landing at well, the time I actually had not been into <laughs> Regina <laughs> yes um the downtown center of Regina yep isn't pretty yep that big building with the but there are gorgeous places and so many nice people. There you and, go. Including Miranda, who's the new, uh, what do you call it? Is she, are you a still patron? Doing, are you still doing levels? It, she would be an eager beaver. Eager beaver! Yeah, there you go. Did we say what she did? In Regina? Yeah. 
I think she runs a, a cannabis shop. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There's a lot of that now. Yeah. And we have someone else from Saskatchewan uh, as our next patron, also an eager beaver, Jasmine Marshall. Jasmine Marshall. And she's from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Paris Saskatoon. of the North. Yeah, Paris of the Prairies. Um, And what does Jasmine do in Saskatoon? She's a jazz singer. A jasmine jazz singer. Yeah, she's a jazz Good singer. Good for her. I, I mean, you know. She does. She does, she likes the old classics. Right? The old, the old classics. She, she does the, like, she has the penis there and the, and the. She have, it does what? Sorry, I, I'm not, I wasn't trying to be rude, the pianist. Okay. Right? And she like lounges and sings and goes out into the audience. And yeah, she's really. I thought you she's, said she plays with the penis. No, don't be horrible. No, she's a very good jazz singer. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That made a loud noise. Sorry. Uh, next up, <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's move on to uh, Donut Money Donors. First up we have. Alicia Maddox, Alicia Maddox, and she says, chocolate dip, bear claw, or a homer with sprinkles, with sprinkles. <laughs> sprinkles. Oh my God, I can't talk today. <laughs> Enjoy. What's a homer? Uh, I don't know. Sounds good though. Yeah. I'll eat it. Like if it's a donut, I'll eat it. <laughs> I will eat it. And what does, uh, where does Alicia live, Alicia Maddox? She lives in Maddox County. Okay. I don't know where that is, but. Uh, it's in Georgia. In Georgia. Well, that's nice. Uh, Alicia lives in Maddox County, Georgia. And what does she do there? What does she do in What does she do in Maddox County, Georgia? Wow, we had to go slow for that. We absolutely have to go slow for that. She she is related to um, Lester Garfield Maddox Senior. Okay. Um, and so she is um, a governor. Oh. Well, there you go. Yes. She's the governor of Georgia. Yeah, she has. She's from a political empire. Well, there you go. Someone's got to be. Yeah. Next up, we have our friend from the Umberyard, Lori Saint Germain. Lori Saint Germain. She says, "Just saying, hey, and wanted to get you some cool summer beverages and Steve a Chewy. Thanks for all your hard work and to entertain us. We wow. love. We love the Saint Germain. We we do. Yes, we do. We really do. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it." I am so tired. <laughs> it is seriously bad. Um, <laughs> Have you always been like this with jet lag? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, we did have a couple of Interac uh, donations, and this one comes to us from... I like the Interac ones as well because they're sort of like... Uh... It's almost like the like little secret society one. Yeah, right. <laughs> Alana Lowe. And Alana, I don't know where Alana's from, but she says, have some tea and crumpets on me. So probably alluding to my trip to London. Yes. Much appreciated. I think she's from Sheffield. She's from Sheffield. And yeah. what does she do in Sheffield? She's a steel worker. Well, there you go. Yeah. Good good on you, Alana. Yeah. It's a, it's a good career. Watch your fingers, though. You got to be yep. careful of your fingers and toes. Um, somebody else named Tracy Lee, and that's L-Y, uh, said, bubble tea money. Bubble tea. So Tracy Lee is sending, sending us money for bubble tea. I love bubble tea. Do you like bubble tea? Have you ever had it? Yes. With the little tapioca balls in it and that go yeah. up through your big straw? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah I, I like those balls going down my throat. They're... <laughs> 
No, I help. I know I don't mean it in I a rude an way, but just sort of that feel <laughs> that feeling in your mouth. You the, heard it here first. Matthew likes to have balls going down. Well, his well, no, I'm not being rude, but you know the balls in your mouth. They, it feels you like balls in your mouth. Well, you know I'm, the bubble tea balls are very okay. They're kind of fun. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> wow. And what does what you does, made it rude? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. My, it was my mind that made it rude. Okay. Um. What does, what does, where does Tracy Lee live, number one? If she's offering us bubble tea, it could be somewhere. She lives in bubble tea land. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that was creative. Boy, did you ever, <laughs> do they pay you for, for copy ever? No. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I think I'm getting your jet lag. Um, yeah, it's what do you contagious. call that? Not contagious, but when you have the, when you like, See. you take on the other person's sickness, but mentally. Sympathetic? No. But mentally, you're mentally ill. Okay, yes, I'm mentally ill. That's why I th- thought of Bubble Tea Land. Okay, um, what what does Tracy Lee do there in Bubble Tea Land? Hopefully, she's a therapist that can help a sleep therapist that can help us both. She measures the balls. Well, she measures the bubble tea balls. Yeah, because they have to be exact for to to get up that straw. Yep. So they can so the balls can be in your mouth. Yeah, it's it it's like a, it's like dancing joy in your mouth oh boy well thank you tracy lee and all our other donut money donors patrons and interact donors much appreciated we love you all we do thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity it helps to keep the show going you can become a patron of dark poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week... Oh my goodness, please, 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 don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Until we meet again. Until we meet again. Don't know where, don't, well, actually, we know where and when. It will be here, and it will be on a Monday. Yeah, Yeah. same place next Monday. Exactly. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 